coming back as a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to live grief support, podcast stickers, giveaways, and so much more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Jessica Waite, who lost her husband in 2015. He called her from an airport shuttle on a business trip, and then never got onto his plane. Also on the show today, I'm recapping my experience on the 2019 bereavement cruise and sharing an interesting fact sheet about funerals that my sister sent my way. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back This Week. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have returned to my apartment in Chicago after being on the 2019 bereavement cruise, and that was just like a hell of an experience. Like, it was so cool. It's going to be one of those things, I'm sure that a lot of you can relate to this, where uh, the experience of being there... um, doing the workshops, doing shore excursions, being on the boat, it's going to come back to me in flashes or in bursts. So it's really kind of hard to think about and then recap all together in one sitting because so much of it uh, was was experienced in the moment. And then there's almost that whiplash of returning to real life again. Um, But suffice it to say that the bereavement cruise was exactly what I expected. And it was exactly not what I expected at all. Um, Highlights were absolutely, absolutely, absolutely getting to see and hear and hug and laugh with listeners of the podcast. So Alina and Kate and everyone else I spent time with on the boat who came because of listening to this show. Thank you so much. I still cannot believe that we got to see each other from across the world. Uh, I know that one of our presenters and Alina both came from the Netherlands to join us on the bereavement cruise. And I think they won the award for farthest distance traveled in order to come on this trip. So it was really just, just so, so cool to get to see you and sit down with you and just like, and spend time with you beyond this kind of one directional podcast that happens in the ether, maybe sometimes an email you send my way. So everyone that came on the boat, uh, after hearing my announcements about hearing uh, interviews with all the presenters that are coming on the ship, I mean, everything. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Probably my second favorite piece of being on the bereavement cruise was getting to present uh, among so many other phenomenal presenters. And I was, I felt I was kind of lucky. I'm not sure what the reasoning was, but my presentation was on the first day at sea. Uh, And so I got to go and then be done and kind of enjoy the boat and do the shore excursions and everything else the other days and just kind of be nearby for ceremonies, continued workshops. We did something called Circles of Hope in the evening that I led and then we did a panel on Friday. But the bulk of my contribution to the bereavement cruise, my, my presentation was on Monday. And as you heard about last week, I did something called Honoring Secondary Loss. And I was just blown away in the moment. I'm getting chills right now by how much uh, I channel when I speak. If there's not a script laid out for me, or even if there is, something happens when I talk where I'm transmitting my own message and my own story, but I also feel in a way that I'm transmitting these these ancient truths or these old messages and old stories about all of our capabilities to come back. And that was something that really came forward in this workshop about honoring secondary loss, because every single person in the room, whether they spoke up and volunteered a secondary loss of their own or not, 
has experienced or will experience some form of secondary loss, whether it's losing a job, being uh, having creativity taken after a loss, not knowing what your identity is, not being able to look at a color or a sign because it's a trigger for your grief, um, things like losing your sex partner after you lose a spouse or losing physical touch when you lose a child. Like it, it was just so incredible to stand in front of a room of people and be like, "This is this is the story," and then have them respond to that and volunteer things of their own and really turn it into a conversation. And then at the very end to bring it home with a meditation that I created about taking these secondary losses off of our backs where we so often carry them and putting them out in front of us. I get chills again here where we can see them and look at them and sort through them and share them with other people because now we can name them. Now we know what they are. And that was just an absolutely stunning experience for my spirit. And and just felt so good to do. Um, probably a- another favorite thing of mine on the bereavement cruise was the remembrance at sea. The It was kind of a, how do I describe this? It wasn't an actual burial at sea. There were people that came on the bereavement cruise that brought cremains who were certified or whatever their paperwork entailed to release cremains at sea, which you can certainly do as a part of the bereavement cruise. But we did a, like a symbolic burial at sea where we wrote the names of our loved ones. I wrote the name of my mom on uh, biodegradable ocean safe paper and then put it in an ocean safe urn. And we took this walk around the ship and everyone had these, you can't take real candles, real flame on a ship, A, because of the wind and they blow out and B, because fire. Um, So we had these battery operated candles that we all carried through this lower deck of the ship on the walking track. And all together, we shouted the names of our loved ones. uh, And one of our leaders, Glenn Lord, who you heard on uh, season four of Coming Back, I believe. Yeah, season four of Coming Back. Um, He held this biodegradable urn over his head and threw all of our loved ones overboard. And we literally got to watch, he tied a blinking light to it. And so we got to watch this blinking light fade away from us and be carried away by the sea until it disappeared. And that combined with how calm the sea was and how bright the stars were and just being surrounded in that moment with all these other people who have lost someone and feel intense just a, such an intense amount of love for them as I do for my mom. It felt like literally we're all in the same boat. Um, and I just love these rituals, these physical rituals that we come up with to release our grief over and over and over again, because grief isn't a one-time thing, as you'll hear in the interview today, but recovering from grief is not a one-time thing either. And so we we keep doing these rituals and these ceremonies and things over and over and over again, and no matter how long ago your loss occurred... I I don't know, it just it still felt very, very powerful, which was really cool. And then the last thing I'll say that I definitely enjoyed about the bereavement cruise, there's so much more I could talk about, was just the experience of having this be a hybrid vacation slash workshop experience. I loved this blending of having these days where I was really focused on my grief and having these conversations and talking about books I love or tools that work for me or practices that we can all take into our lives going forward, but also the combination of like, oh my God, I got to go snorkeling for the very first time in my life in Cozumel. I have never done that before. And uh, a bunch of us went horseback riding in the ocean together, which was wild and spoke totally to my inner horse girl. Uh, I loved horses from probably the time I was four or five until now. It's just never gone away. And so that was just incredible. Uh, And then just being able to just like hang out on the beach and take pictures and get a tropical pineapple drink with a lot of rum in there and just, and just, um, experience that and be with people and hear their stories too and just have that relaxing experience of yeah I can take a nap in a lounge chair for a little bit and work on my grief all in the same week all in the same day all in the same hour even and uh and I just love that juxtaposition because it made grief feel like more of my life I think a lot of times we tend to quarantine grief away from us and tell ourselves it's something we'll work on later that we'll get to later. But the bereavement cruise in its of itself was this really cool reminder that grief can always coexist. There's always room for it to coexist alongside new experiences, alongside vacation, alongside joy, alongside friends. And it's just like, it's something that needs to be, I know you can't see me, but I'm bringing air in next to me as if I'm hugging it. It's about reintegrating grief or hugging it back into your life and um, bringing it out of the quarantine, out of the the cage that we try and keep it in so often. And so having 
grief workshops occur on something that's quote unquote supposed to be a fun vacation was just a really cool reminder that yeah, you can do grief and joy and vacation and growth and adventure all at the same time in the same breath on the same calendar days. Like it, it was just very, very cool. Um, I will go ahead and tell you grief growers that Linda Finley and Glenn Lord, the leaders of the bereavement cruise have already announced dates for the bereavement cruise for next year. There's actually two that are happening. The first one is happening uh, in April of next year. And the second one is happening, I believe it's a four day cruise between the end of November. So after Thanksgiving and the beginning of December 2020. And this is one of those things where if the bereavement crew spoke to you, it wasn't the right date, the time the money didn't come together, you couldn't leave your kids in March, whatever the case was for this past one. If for any reason, these dates work for you, and you want to be on one of the next bereavement cruises, there's two coming next year get on it right now. Uh, first thing to do is tell them I sent you. Shelby Forsythia of the Coming Back podcast sent me uh, your way, sent you their way. <laughs> However you'd like to phrase that uh, via email or via phone as well. And uh, and then sign up, make your deposit, book the room, all that jazz, uh, because it is something that will fill up quickly. And to my knowledge, I believe they had to turn a few people away this past year, either uh, for paying late or for trying to sign up after the cruise ship. The Royal Caribbean has its own deadlines that they need to abide by. And so there were people that wanted to sign up but came under the wire too late. So if you are at all interested in being on one of the 2020 bereavement cruises, I highly, highly recommend it as an experience. And uh, and I would just love to hear about it if you went. I myself am still on the fence about whether or not I'm going. Uh, the timing, April and December, is a little trickier for me with the day job that I work. Um, being in the restaurant industry, one is convention season and one is the holidays. And so it's very tricky being in a service industry to kind of be able to step away from that. But I will give you uh, the website. And the website for that, should you care to look it up, is www.journeysofhopehealingandhealth.com. Com. Again, www.journeysofhopehealingandhealth.com. And I will put a link to this website in the show notes as well for your reference. Something else I wanted to swing your way this week, grief growers, is something that my sister sent me, which was really cool. Um, one of the neat things about identifying publicly as somebody who works with grief is that there's always people sending you links and articles and resources and videos and stories and books and just cool stuff to look up and continue. I guess I suppose it's part of how I've continued my education as somebody who considers herself a student of grief. And my sister sent me this Facebook post that was actually from a Tumblr post. And the origin of this, I don't want to um, not give credit, is a person called Riley Mouse. And that's spelled R-E-I- L-L-Y mouse, like the little animal with whiskers and big ears, or Mickey Mouse, if you will. Um, and the title of this post is called Fun Funeral Facts. And fun can be taken with a grain of salt here. Um, but they're more like funeral facts you may have never heard before. And this is something that harkens back to my conversation with Caleb Wilde uh, on coming back. And he is actually the man who wrote the book Confessions of a Funeral Director. And in that book, there were so many things that blew my mind of how the funeral industry works and the things that are and are not required when somebody you love dies and you're going through the process of getting them either processed through a funeral home or embalmed or laid out at home or a green burial, kind of however that works. And so there's this rundown in the article that I just wanted to repeat for you here. And then I will actually post this this week in the Grief Growers Garden so that you can see and read this for yourself and maybe even bookmark it if you would like to. So the title of the article is Fun Funeral Facts. Number one, Embalming, the process of chemically preserving a corpse, is typically not required by law. Unless you need to transport the body long distance or postpone the burial, it is 100% a vanity thing and is not required. Number two, a body still rots in airtight conditions, so a quote-unquote protective or sealed casket is basically a scam, and anything fancy like metal is a waste of money if you're trying to save money. Number three, if you would like a beautiful casket for viewing, but think burning or burying an expensive piece of hardwood is a waste of money and trees, rentals exist. Number four, you do not need a coffin for cremation. The minimum requirement is that the body be in what's called a cremation container, which is a simple cardboard box. Number five, home funerals are an option. And this is something that Caleb Wilde brought up in Confessions of a Funeral Director. You do not need to hand the body over to a funeral home, and you can keep their involvement to a minimum. 
Number six, natural burial sites exist. You can have your unembalmed body straight up thrown in the dirt to be tree food if you want. This would be considered a green burial, and you can look up green burials in your area. Number seven, there are a lot of funeral homes that will prey on your ignorance and vulnerability in order to get as much money out of you as possible. They might imply that optional services are legally mandatory, steer you away from cheaper options, charge additional costs for what's supposed to be all-inclusive services, etc. And number eight, one person's death is and has been manufactured to be, as we heard about in Caleb Wilde's conversation, another person's profit. So one person's death is another person's profit. Know your rights do your research, and apply the same scrutiny you would to any other business. And obviously, this uh, this rundown, this post, is kind of a cautionary tale about dealing with funeral homes. I myself had, I'd say, I'd say like a so-so experience with a funeral home, but I know immediately after my mom died, going to such few uh, funerals in my life, the only thing my brain jumped to was like, okay, now she's died, she goes to a funeral home, that's the process, that's the way of it. I had no idea that we could have kept her at home for a little while or just sat with her body uh, or that, uh, you know, that we could have dressed her for her viewing or that a coffin was not required. I mean, any of these other things, like, I just didn't know. And it's one of those things that the more you educate yourself on it, the more, I don't want to use the word safe, but maybe the more protected or informed or powerful or you feel like you have more agency when it comes down to actually having to make these decisions in real life. So once again, I'll actually post this uh, Tumblr link in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private Facebook group for listeners of this podcast. So if you're not already a member, all you have to do is search Grief Growers Garden on Facebook and answer the three questions that are required in there. And then uh, I'll approve you to be a part of the group. And we would absolutely love to have you. And of course, if you have your own story about dealing with a funeral home in the aftermath of loss, whether it was a positive or a negative experience, or maybe like mine, somewhere in between, would love to have you share that with us as well. I think we can all learn from each other in the aftermath of loss. And of course, the losses that we face so far are not the only losses that we will face. So we can we can get better at this, we can become more informed, we can make different choices for the losses that we're going to have to face in the future. So thank you to my sister Paige for sending that my way this week. And uh, if you'd like to send an article my way as well, post it in the Grief Growers Garden, I'm in there all the time, uh, or Shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And I'll also have that email address for you in the show notes. Next up, my conversation with Jessica Waite, whose husband called her from a shuttle on his way to the airport, but he never got on the plane. One of the most helpful things I've found in my lost grief growers is a witness to my journey. Beyond feeling that I'm not alone, although that's extremely helpful in the aftermath of loss, I feel like by sharing my story with someone else, I have a sounding board, a guide, and someone who's just a little bit farther ahead on the road than I am. There is camaraderie and small, growing strength and confidence in finding a grief coach who can companion you, walk alongside you, and you're coming back. I want to be the person to hold this space for you on a one-on-one level. If you're looking for more focused attention on your heart, whether you're coping with death, divorce, diagnosis, or something else, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching to receive more information about the types of grief coaching I offer and to fill out an interest form. That's shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. I'm here to be your companion, toolbox, and shoulder in grief. You can also find a link in the show notes. After losing her husband to a sudden heart attack, Jessica Waite felt like her whole life had blown up. All her memories and future dreams were shattered, contaminated with pain, and lost in the rubble. At first, it was too overwhelming to even look at, but eventually Jessica found that writing helped her sift through the remnants and put the pieces back together. Now she encourages others to heal through writing. She conserves people's stories and helps them reconnect on her website, which is called EndlessStories.Love. Jessica, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today because you reached out as a listener of the show and you're like, well, I have a story to add to the stories of everyone listening who is grieving. So we'll start where we start all of our episodes and uh, tell us your lost story. All right. Well, thanks for having me. And 
Yeah. So uh, my husband, Sean, passed away very suddenly in November of 2015. Uh, He was on what was supposed to be a two-day business trip to Houston. And he called me from the airport shuttle and then never got on the plane. Um, He died very suddenly. And um, yeah, it was awful, (laughs) obviously. And um, that was about three years ago. And uh, we had Uh, We have one son who was nine at the time. Um, And um, yeah, I remember everything about it very distinctly. Um, And I was really lucky that my mom was um, visiting me. Just she just happened by coincidence to be here. So uh, she was with me when I got the news. Thank goodness, because it came just over the phone. Um, And yeah, it was obviously the hardest, (laughs) hardest day that I've ever been through. Can you kind of unpack that moment for us? Because I know so many other stories on coming back entail, you know, people sitting with their loved ones as they're dying or kind of at least being close by in some form. And I think there's such a distinct difference in loss that happens far away. Yeah, I felt that. And well, just, it just a few things. So in the, in the immediate instant, it was very, very hard to believe. Um, just because it was a call, like a, a stranger on the phone telling me um, that my husband was dead. And I had literally just been speaking to him like an hour before. Um, and so it, it obviously, we'll all, <laughs> we'll all feel some amount of shock um, when, when the death happens, but it was, I couldn't believe it for a long time. And because my husband traveled a lot, it took a, for both my son and I, we um, about a year before we stopped thinking that he was going to come walking back through the door. It felt it felt like he had just gone away on a trip and he was going to come back. And that, um, yeah, I couldn't believe it took so so long, like a, a full year, um, before we really realized what had happened. I think that makes a lot of sense, though. Um, I know in my own personal story, I had eyeballs on my mom's body less than an hour after she died in our home. And I still couldn't believe she was gone. Like for, I, I, some part of me still believes like five years later now that she's just going to walk in the door or is gone on like world's longest cruise. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, it's- and, and it's just, it's a, it's like another life that's living parallel to me that I can never touch, but I still dream about all the time. Yeah. Yeah. that. I, that analogy really resonates with me that it's a, it's a parallel um, space. And, and I didn't know how common that was. I thought it was just a function of my husband's business travel. Then we were kind of used to him being gone a lot of the time, but um, I've heard from other people now that, that it is common um, to keep expecting them to come back or, you know, um, you think you see them somewhere and it feels, yeah, that moment of shock when you realize that it can't possibly be them. Yeah. Yeah, well, you see the pack of people's heads and stuff, or you think you see them in a crowd. It's this, yeah. A lot of people call it wishful thinking, and I'm like, it's not even that. Sometimes I just, it's not even wishful. It it just is. It's the way my brain is thinking. I just still see them everywhere. Yeah, it, it's a brain. It's an automatic brain function, and I I had my um, one of my husband's brothers. Um, they look a little bit alike, and they both shave their heads, so they. Um, so I, I remember at the funeral service coming out of the bathroom and seeing my brother-in-law and thinking that it was Sean and just, <laughs> it was a heart stopping moment for me. Um, just like, yeah, I don't think it was wishful thinking. I think it was just this automatic reaction. Um, and then it happens from time to time. Yeah. I want to explore something that's, just popped into the front of my mind. And that is that you were home with your son when you got the news, but then your mom was also nearby. And so I'm kind of, I'm I'm building this picture of like, wow, that's three generations of grief all in one room together. So I'm wondering kind of like what happened, like there had to have been different conversations that you had with your son versus the ones you had with your mom, but also from your mom to you, your mom to your son, and kind of all between the three of you, because how grief is taken in through different types of relationships, but also at different ages, 
makes a really, really powerful impact. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I actually had my mom has a friend who lives um, in a small town that's near where I live. And so we had driven out to see her friend and have lunch with her. And so that's where we were when I got the news. And so we had to drive back um, about 45 minutes to get back to my house. Um, and so my mom drove and I just was trying to process it. And she was just sitting with me, <laughs> just, I think, holding space for me as I tried to make sense of what had happened. And then realizing that I was going to have to tell my son and thinking, should I drive right to his school and pick him up? And she said, no, just <laughs> you need to take some time for yourself. And so I had time where she was the mother to me. And then when it was time for my son's school to be finished, I was the mother to him. And then I took him. I, what I decided to do was um, to take him outside of our house just to like a random street that we never went down um, so that he wouldn't have to associate this memory with a place that he would see all the time. Cause I thought if I stay home and he's in his room or whatever, like what if it, the trauma of the news like makes him not feel safe in his room? So I took him just a few blocks away to this random street. And, and um, then I just sat on the sidewalk with him and told him what had happened. And it was awful that telling him that news was worse than getting the news myself. And um, he started screaming and <laughs> kind of ran away. And I, then I got scared that someone would think that I was hurting him or that I was like a, a stranger that was trying to harm him. Um, and then, so I said, let's go home. And then we got in the van and came home and then my mom was there waiting for us. And then the three of us just cried together and, my son took a little bit of time on his own to process it. And then he asked if we could color, you know, the, those fancy kind of mandala coloring books. And we sat at the kitchen table, the three of us just coloring. And <laughs> it was like that for, I don't know, an hour or something until the family, the extended family started coming over. So. That's such an incredible visual. And there's these tiny, tiny pieces of, wisdom that appeared in that story from your mom to you no take this time have a little bit of breath as much as you possibly can before you have to face this news with your son but also on your part to be like i don't want him to associate this memory with home and for all of our grief goers listening who have broken the news at home this is not like a this is not an issue of better or worse i don't think but i think some kind of I don't know. It sounds like some wisdom just came to you in that moment of this is not, if I'm going to have this play out like this, I'm going to at least make some kind of decision about where it happens. I have control over locations. Oh, yeah. I have control over nothing else that just happened. Yeah. that Yeah. And, and definitely like none of us knows what to do, obviously in this situation. And it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I thought to do that, but, um, and at first, when I got there, when he was running away, I thought well, that was the stupidest idea ever. Um, but then to get to come home and come back to the safe place, it felt like the right decision after we. Yeah, I think we all just do our best in the mo in the moment. Yeah, my gosh, of course. And it's funny when people tell stories on this show, they're like, it's really funny, even in those moments, how much I'm still thinking about the people around me, even though my whole world has just ended, I can still see like my web of people, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Just echoing that back for sure. I want to know, and this might be, correct me if you would prefer not to answer this question, um, which is totally fine on this podcast, but what was the process like of getting Sean home. Oh, Shelby, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, because I live in Canada and Sean died in the U S in Texas. And so, um, the fact that he was alone and that it was an unexpected death meant that they had to do an autopsy. And so, oh my God. um, it took a long time um, for the autopsy to be completed. And so I didn't even know how he died. Um, and I wasn't even able, able to talk to the doctor. And they need, they wanted some medical reports from um, his family doctor, but 
the family doctor was in the process of retiring. And so he was closing his office down. So it, there was a lot of uh, bureaucracy and a lot of going back and forth and so many unanswered questions um, that took weeks and weeks to come back. Um, and then in terms of the service, um, I had to make, like, I didn't know when we were going to be able to have his cremated remains returned. Um, and so I had to decide, like, like balance out, maybe he'll be back in time for the funeral and maybe not. And it's, it's just, Sean was not the most punctual person in the world. He was <laughs> astonished. He was astonishingly <laughs> wonderful in like almost every other way, except um, he was late a lot. And I used to joke that he'd be late for his own funeral. And it did turn out that his cremated remains weren't at the service that we, that we had. This was not so. the turn that I expected this answer to take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. And it just, it frustrates me to know. And the amount of, paperwork that's involved with a quote-unquote standard death and then to have this across you know across country lines and legal lines and doctors are retiring and paperwork is lost and all this stuff you're like can't you just make an exception for my grief like really yeah it really you really get the feeling and I'm sure this is common to a lot of people dealing you know just because there's bureaucracy at every level um, that there doesn't feel like there's a lot of compassion in the system. And so to be having to, you know, be on hold or making all these calls or doing all these kind of official things when you're really feeling your capacity diminished by shock and grief, it's, it's hard. So again, I was very grateful that my mom was with me because she handled a lot of the front line paperwork. And, um, that, that would be one of my biggest things, um, advice to people if they find themselves in this situation is to have a trusted person try to manage some of that stuff for you because it's it's a bureaucratic nightmare <laughs> yeah it is and especially when we're grieving i've seen a lot of posts on this recently about grief brain and just how so yes. much of our brain is working so hard to assimilate what happened because oftentimes the news of death is so sudden or so shocking to us that our brain is working overtime. Like even when we're sleeping to try and like catalog that information, it's not something, I mean, unless you're in situations of war or strife or extreme poverty, you don't see death happening every day. And so when death right. does happen, it's like, Holy shit, I have to suddenly calibrate my entire brain around this reality that I never thought I would see. And so that, takes about 99.9% of your mental capacity. And then you still have to remember how to drive and that your keys don't belong in the freezer and you figure out like, what's my last name to put on this form? Like things like that. I couldn't write my own name for a while. And so, yeah, even having other people around is helpful because there is a lot to do, but also just having another set of eyeballs on it is helpful too. You're like, okay, I can I can do this. I have the support of this, but almost like a proofreader, I guess. Um, or, uh, yeah. just some, some level of backup. Like, am I, am I doing this right? Am I filling this out? Right. Is that where that post-it note goes or the sign here? Like, yeah. come on. Well, cause and they're official legal documents, a lot of them. Right. So you don't want to screw. I only have so much whiteout in my house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. for sure. Absolutely. I'm thinking back to just this, I, I'm still stuck on this idea of his body left for a business trip and then you never saw him again or were able to hold him, touch him, be around him. How much do those like last living memories with him exist in like the front of your brain? Like how present are they? Yeah, it's, I've spent a lot of time on that very question because our last conversation, obviously we didn't know it'd be the last. And we talked about just, you know, that I paid the plumber for some work and he was mad about something that had gone wrong with his hotel stay. And, you know, it's just, there was no sense of, you know, a deep heart to heart, meaningful um, last conversation. And I, um, so then I was trying to conjure like, what's the last memory of seeing him? And it was hard to recall, but I was lucky because I have a really strong memory of um, 
he died on November 4th. And so just a few days before that was Halloween. And uh, my son dressed up as the Dread Pirate Roberts um, from uh, The Princess Bride. And my husband dressed dressed as Harry Potter. And they had this duel in the backyard, like um, the wand and the sword clashing and running around. And it was just so, so, like, my last very, very strong memory is absolutely wonderful. And it included, you know, our whole family. And it's, um, yeah, it's it's great. I like that a lot because I'm writing it down as you're speaking, conjuring up close to last memories when final memories aren't accessible or very clear. And it seems like a permission that a lot of us need to grant ourselves in grief is, oh, I can't remember the last thing they said or did or wore or, you know, what they smelled like or things like that. But if you can find, you like backtracked, I don't know, five days and you were like, there's a strong one. I can totally latch onto that and hold that very brightly in my brain as something that we all share together and I will never forget. I think that's really cool. That's the first time I've heard anything like that is, you know, when I can't quite remember the last day, maybe I can rewind just a little bit and get one that's that's good enough or maybe even better, even stronger. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm happy that the one that I have is so strong. And then I also did some, like, I tried to conjure like a, like, I made a composite memory, like what, like, I knew what would have been the last time that I saw him. And then just based on, you know, our routine and our, you know, day to day um, thing, I, I, I was like, it's a made up memory just as good as a real one. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it is or not, but I think we have to sometimes make things work when things aren't ideal. And that like, that's another thing is the last Sean's last night um, that we were together. He slept in the guest room because he had to get up at four 30 in the morning to catch a flight. And so, you know, for a while I was regretting like <laughs> that we didn't even have that last, it, you know, but those are the things that I've realized that we need to free ourselves from in order to um, move through the grief that guilt and regret don't serve us. And so I've, I've spent some time trying to release those kinds of thoughts. Can you speak more on that? Because I know things like that circling around in your brain is what like the grief recovery method would call. I wish it had gone different, better or more. Um, and my mom would laugh and call it woulda, coulda, shoulda. <laughs> um, yeah. so I, think, I think however you phrase it, there's always this wish or this guilt or this remorse that things didn't play out differently. And so maybe if we can dive into what has been your process of freeing yourself from that. And it also maybe sounds like it's something you've had to do over and over and over again. Yeah, it's definitely not a one and done kind of thing. Um, But it's um, one of the things that helped me a great deal. Well, I I did counseling. And so I had I was lucky that I had counselors that were really excellent. Um, But one of the things that a counselor told me was, she put into my mind the idea that we're still in relationship with the person who has died. And I had never considered that I thought, you know, they go to heaven or whatever it is that happens when we die and that's the end and we the relationship's over but I still have you know all of this love and all these feelings and regret and guilt and you know just you know everything um and so I don't have anywhere to put it now and and so the idea that that I still had a relationship that was different and obviously not the relationship that I wanted but that I could do things like writing letters or just journaling um, as a process of staying in communication um, that helped a great deal in terms of releasing. So I could write, you know, if I didn't want to have like, it was something that I regretted then, and I don't want it anymore, then I can like burn it. And if I still want it, but want to um, change it somehow, I can, make art over it. Or, you know, there's just a lot of things that we can do to get those thoughts out of our heads and out and they'll get the feelings out of our bodies and then change them into something else that is less painful to us. I'm smiling. I love this so much because it's almost like a grief alchemy where it's so cool where 
we underestimate the power of putting things down into physical form. Uh, and then once they're there, they can even take a different shape than that. But the best part of all, at least to my brain, is like, oh, look, that's not inside of my brain anymore. There's something that's like, oh, like you just, um, it's almost like untangling a necklace. Yes, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean with that metaphor. And 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 the amazing thing is, you don't have to be good at whatever you're doing. Like, <laughs> I'm oh, not. I love artist, that you but, said that. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's a wonderful thing to say. Yeah, because it, it just works. It works anyway. If we, <laughs> if you're a crummy painter, drawer, writer, like you don't you don't have to be skilled at the thing, and the alchemy works anyway. And that's what I have found to be amazing. I'm literally writing that down because I think that's just such a wise insight too, because we put <laughs> we put all this pressure on ourselves to be like good at grief, even though for the most part, all of us are going through it for the first time. And then we put pressure on ourselves to be good at recovering from grief. And um, it, whether that means, you know, drawing, painting, making music, meditating, doing, you know, like anything that we reach for, we're like, oh, not only do I have to be good at my grief while I'm doing this, I have to be good at doing the thing that I'm doing. And you're like, no, 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 it works anyway. <laughs> it's it's magic. I don't. Yeah. And, and uh, there's just this pressure in our society, especially the westernized world of if I try it for the first time, and I'm not good at it, I must be bad at it. And, yeah. and, and that badness somehow exists forever into the future. And I'm like, we really only stop because we think we have to be good at it the first time or even subsequent times. Um, I know I personally have not gone back and looked at the first journals I kept after my mom died because I'm afraid to see like what that writing looks like. And actually worrying that I was going to be a bad writer kept me from writing after her death for at least, uh, it's hard to put a definitive timeline on it because that time in my life was so foggy, but at least like six to eight months. Like I knew I needed to, but I was like, oh, it's going to turn out yeah. bad. And I'm, then I'm like, who's going to read this? It's mine. Like, <laughs> A, yes. who's going to read it? And then yes. B, if I just get it out, it, it, it there it goes. Like it, it um, the pressure's released no matter what, if it's good or if it's bad, or if anybody sees it or anybody doesn't see it, it's, it's doing the work anyway. The work is being done. Oh my gosh. How cool. I love that. We're both excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to ask. Uh, really quickly, you have a continued relationship with Sean, even though he has died and even into his death. And I'm wondering, and I know you can't necessarily speak for him, but what your son's relationship with him has morphed into, has alchemized into over the years? Well, it's been amazing. I, I Every day I'm grateful for my son and the kind of person that he is because he's so he was nine when his dad died and he's 12 now um but he still talks to me he still will share his feelings and and what i'm noticing and well i'll backtrack a little bit just to say that one of the key things that i learned in counseling was that kids um will have to re process the loss at every developmental stage that they reach until they're adults. And then mm -hmm. finally they'll understand the death as an adult. And so that was really helpful in terms of realizing that he's going to keep re-experiencing this and, and to kind of prepare for that. But what I'm finding is that he's, as he's growing up, he's tapping into, I think probably his DNA, um, and he's liking to do some of the same kinds of hobbies that my husband did. So my husband liked to build models. And the other day I was out for a few hours. And when I came home, my son had gone into an old box that had a bunch of like toy soldiers. And he found one that my husband had painted and he had gotten some paints for Christmas. And he used that one as a model and painted five or six little toy soldiers that like in the <laughs> copying what his dad had done. And it just, um, it seems again, remarkably healing and a remarkable way to stay connected. Um, even though his dad wasn't sitting beside him teaching him how to do it, he figured out from his dad's example, how to do it. And um, so he's finding his own ways to stay in relationship just without even my prompting. So, um, but I think part of it might be because we, we talked about that. He, like he said, I'm the only one in my class who doesn't have a dad. Mm. And I was gutted by, by that because, yeah, I mean, like even if parents are divorced, usually 
I mean, not everyone gets to see their dad for sure, but, but, um, at age nine, it's not very common, um, that your dad would be gone already. And so I didn't know what to do at first, but later when he said it again, I said, you do have a dad still. Um, and so I think him buying into the idea that he has a dad who he doesn't get to see, but he does get to talk to and he does get to bond with, um, that that's helping him as he grows up, uh, to keep processing the loss. That's so hard because there's such a tendency, especially as kids, we're very focused on comparing, like, do you have as many goldfish as I have? Or, you know, do you have a pink ribbon in your hair and I have a blue ribbon? And just like that compare contrast is how you start figuring out who you are as a person. And it doesn't really change as adults. We have labels for things. They're just a lot more complicated and we're still counting and comparing, but it turns into like, dollars and stuff instead of like snacks. And uh, so, so yeah, the fact that, that he really picked up on starkly that I'm the only one without a dad, like, of course, yeah, that would be an observation that he would make. And I think so much of his growth, and I'm just hearing this in your story too, comes from you being a place to be able to talk about it instead of shutting it down or denying that it exists at all, or don't feel sorry for yourself or kind of dismissing that recognition of, wow, this is a really unique experience for me as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. You have done a lot of great work to make yourself a welcome space for that. And I'm wondering, I'm going back to the generational question again, if that's something that your mother taught you or where in your life before losing Sean, if anywhere at all, did you learn how to hold space for the hard things? Um, well, we, (laughs) I didn't, so my parents, um, split up when I was the same, all close to the same age that Dash was when his dad died. And so I've been through, um, you know, the breakup of a family and my mom raised us, um, on her own without very much input from my dad. And so there was, I guess I had her as a role model, um, of getting through adversity and, being a single parent and, you know, just so, yeah, there are some parallels in terms of um, my losing my dad as a child in a different way. Um, So probably all of those things contributed to being able to do that. Um, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I never thought about, about how I was holding the space, but it must be, some combination of life experience and my personality. I think that makes perfect sense. I think that was really well phrased. Absolutely. Um, I'm wondering, I kind of want to shift gears and talk about your community called endlessstories.love. And that's a website where people can share memories through writing and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So when did you feel a need to make your story public, but also invite others to make their stories public too? Well, it's kind of a funny story how I got the idea to create the website. Um, So Sean was the youngest of six kids and uh, his brother had a milestone birthday about a year and a half after Sean died. And so the family all got together and we had a big dinner and after dinner, um, his brother who he's an engineer and he's a really great guy, but not typically the most sentimental person that you'd ever meet. But I think cause you know, everyone was just there. He started telling this story about being back at university and it was winter and there was a big snowball fight and he met this girl and they went to the pub after, and it was his wife, Erin, my sister-in-law. And I've been related to them for 20 years and had never, ever heard the story before. And I think most of the room hadn't heard it. And it just prompted everyone to go around and tell their stories of how they met each other. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was heartwarming and, you know, just sentimental in the best possible way. And everyone had gone and it would have been my turn. And the birthday cake came into the room and interrupted things. And as we were singing happy birthday, I realized that it was a very happy accident that the cake came in because no one was going to ask me to share my story because not because they don't care, don't love me, but because 
it was such a nice vibe and they didn't want to make me sad or kill the mood, like, you know, just those kind of things. And I thought if the people in that room don't ask me to share my love story, no one is ever going to ask, like, I'm never going to have a chance to tell that story again. And that made me very sad because it felt like another kind of loss. And I realized that probably no matter what loss you've experienced, you have like probably almost everyone has some version of their own of that happening where they feel excluded from a conversation because people don't want to make them sad or make things awkward by bringing up their loved one that has died. And it, to me, it seemed like such, it's so ironic because what we want is to be remembered when we die. And yet as a culture, we're not very good at saying people's names and letting them come into the space and be part of the conversation afterward. And so I was looking for a place like, I'm like, I want to write my love story, put it, put it somewhere. And like, I couldn't find anywhere that was specifically for that. And I could put it on Facebook or that type of thing, but it doesn't, that didn't feel like, I don't know. It doesn't always feel like the most comfortable thing. And so I just decided to make a website and invite people to share their stories of how they met their person or how, you know, a happy memory or a terrible memory or <laughs> just, it can just be anything like any memory. And so, yeah, so I did that. It's almost been a year. Um, Valentine's Day last year uh, we launched. So, Oh, that's lovely. And was the first story that you told your meeting story? Actually, yeah. Uh, I didn't tell my, the very first story that um, I told was I actually interviewed my mom and I found out how my mom and dad met and what their, <laughs> what their origin story was. And I didn't know that story. And so it was like, I was overjoyed to be able to get to know the story, talk to my mom about this thing that we never, you know, really ever talked about. And then my mom started talking to her friends about, and then hearing all of those stories. And, you know, if, if it's something that's available to people, I highly recommend asking your parents how they met and how, how they decided that each other was the one. Um, it's, it's great. It is really cool. And, and so unfortunately, some of those stories are things that we hear after they've died and they come from other people. And there's a, there's a different grief in that that comes from acquiring new information when you can't talk about it with the person who the information is about. So, yes. you know, in the years since my mom died, I've learned, you know, stories as small as, you know, she wanted different flowers in her wedding bouquet, but because the family was Catholic, they had a friend of the family do the flowers for free. And so you get what you get in a family of seven kids and you deal with it. And so, um, from, from stories as small as that to as big as how my dad proposed, I didn't hear that story until, we were talking to the pastor who was going to give her eulogy and he was looking for, you know, more information on her and my dad's relationship and everything. And my dad for the very first time with my sister and I in the room told the story of how he proposed to my mom. And we were just blown away. Like we never heard that story before, but there's immense grief and like, Oh my God, I wish I could talk about this with the person who it's about. Um, and so I just yeah. love that you're taking so much initiative to do this in life. Um, I'm wondering if maybe you'll share yours and Sean's meeting story with us here on the show today. Okay. Well, it's so Sean and I actually met in Japan. We were both teaching English there after university and we worked for the same company, but in different cities. And um, the way that it worked was the teacher who was leaving um, moved into the same apartment or the teacher who was arriving, moved into the same apartment as the teacher who just left and the company held that. So we knew that Sean was coming, a friend and I, and we took a little welcome care package over and left it for him with our phone numbers. And he didn't phone for like over a month. And we're like, who is this loser? <laughs> <laughs> then, um, then we got together for like a welcome dinner at a little Mexican restaurant. Um, and Sean said that 
the minute that he saw me, he, well, he knew he wanted to sit beside me at the table, but he couldn't get in there when he saw me smile. But then when I got up to go to the bathroom, he saw how tall I was, which is five inches taller than him. And he didn't think that he'd ever have a shot. Um, but he, <laughs> but he was a very determined guy and he was so smart and funny that he just, uh, charmed me and, and, uh, eventually I agreed to go out with him. Um, and I said it would only be for, it was when I'd given my notice, I had to give four months notice. And so I'm like, I'll go out with you for four months, but then we're breaking up because I don't want a long distance relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so he had four months to win me over and he totally did. So yeah, that's our, that's our origin story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm thinking it's so <laughs> funny, like how we try and strategically plan love. Uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of like how we try and strategically plan grief is it never ends up looking like how we think it's going to look in our brains. But then that no. circles back to what you said earlier to like, no matter how you express it, the work is still being done. Like you don't have to be good at it. It doesn't have to follow the plan um, for it to work. Oh my gosh. I just love that so much because that's unlike any origin story that I've ever heard. And everybody's going to have some, that's a little bit different. And I just think that's so incredibly cool. Um, what has the response been to endless stories and kind of the community you built up around it? It's been really nice and it's, um, um, it's been surprising to me because I didn't know exactly what would happen. <laughs> so at, because of the way that I came around to it and where I was in my grief process that I was sort of at the stage of like, trying to take my memories of like my anniversary, my love story and stuff that they still felt really sad because it felt like, you know, that's gone, like that's over. And it felt painful to think about those things, but writing kind of polished them off, like cleaned the pain off of it, if that doesn't sound too weird and made it happy for me. And so I wanted to put happy stories and happy memories. Um, but a lot of people, when they, if they're, um, loss was fresher. They were sharing their grief stories and sad stories, which are so welcome. Also, every kind of story is welcome. And so it was interesting to see, you know, the kind of stories that came in and how people were, you know, processing and staying in relationship um, by sharing stories. And then there are people who have never submitted a story, but just read them. And some of them write to me and say things like, you know, one woman said that when her dad died, she couldn't cry. Um, but when she came and read the stories on the site, she cried for the first time. And it was so cathartic. And it it really spoke to the fact that um, we're not alone. And things, you know, things like this podcast, but like it, it, grief feels so isolating. I think for most people, it definitely did for me. And our pain feels like it's all ours. And it feels like we're the only one who knows, you know, who knows what it's like. But when we see and read other people's stories, we're connecting in and kind of, I don't know, it really, it's like a tow line, like pulling you out. That's how it feels to me. Like that, that these connections bring us back into the world and help us pull us out of that dark, dark, awful place that feels like it's going to go on forever. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that visual of a toe line because God knows I love a good visualization for grief and that's not one I've heard yet. And it's something like rejoining the world in grief doesn't necessarily make you feel better about the pain that you're in, but you suddenly know that you're not alone in the pain. So it can still feel yeah. pretty crappy. Like I'm still sobbing about the fact that my father died, yeah. like for this lady who wrote in. Um, but at the same time, she's like, look, there's somebody else who lost their father. Like I'm not alone in this yeah. room or I'm not alone in this experience. And even though the stories are different, the universal experience and the human experience of grief has been going on forever and ever and ever and ever for as long as we've had things to form relationships to people and things and animals, even the experience of loss and of grief have been going on for millennia. So I just love that your, your site is like a, 
a dedication to that, that truth. Absolutely. It's, you're so right. With what you said, it's just, it's been ongoing forever and it's, it feels like that sometimes, sometimes it feels like it will go on forever and that, but there's a, a, an immensity to it um, that we become part of, but it feels like we have to carry it all along. And when we realize that we don't, it doesn't go away, like you said, but we're sharing in it and that makes a difference. If you had to point to one thing in your grief journey that helped you come back, what would you say that is? Well, I think it would be writing, just journaling for myself only um, and being able to move the pain out of my body and onto the page. (laughs) That's, That's the number one thing. I love that. And I think that's true for so many. And then just to just something that I've learned that's so the writing, getting it out of our body is one thing, but sharing, um, whether it's sharing, like polishing it into something that somebody else can read or just sharing the experience that you wrote it or whatever, if writing's not your thing, but baking is, and you bake things and give them, share them. Like it's, getting it out of the body and then sharing it with someone else to reconnect um, is the next step of that. And so I would say that it's actually the sharing that makes me come back. (laughs) The the sharing made me come back. The the writing kept me alive (laughs) and the sharing. So well phrased. Oh my goodness. I can tell you work with words because like, holy moly, that's just so perfect. There are the things that ensure that we continue to exist. And then there are the things that bring us back to our lives again. And that's a really cool distinction you just made. Oh, I'm so excited. I've got chills. (laughs) Um, I'm so excited. (laughs) Well, Jessica, where can people find you and your work? And if they'd like to submit a story or just even get in touch with you, how can that happen? So they can go to the website, endlessstories.love. And, um, and so what I'd invite people to do is just, you know, look at the other stories. And, and I just want to say a little bit about how it works if people want to submit a story. There's an uploader and it's if you've uploaded things into other Facebook or other places, it should be fairly easy to use. But you can set a privacy setting so that you have the story only for yourself. If you if you if you feel like you don't wouldn't want anyone else to see it. Um, I'll be able to see it, but if, but nobody else can. So there are some stories that are set to, to private. And then there are some that are set to only the group. Um, so, cause you have to register to um, be part of it. That's just, there's no fee and I don't spam people or anything like that. It's just, as you know, to keep out, um, just to keep it as a safe community. Um, and then you can also set it to public so that anyone could see uh, who's not a, a member. So there's, privacy controls. And there's also a feature where if you want, you can have the story emailed back to yourself on a day that you choose. So if it's your person's birthday or your anniversary, or, you know, just some kind of special day, um, you know, that your story is coming to your inbox, which is very different than what I found the experience of Facebook memories that kind of ran the ones that assault you. Yes, yes, they're very much a gut punch. It's <laughs> like you're under the table gasping for air. So this way, um, yeah, you know that it's coming and you're in control of it. So, so those are the um, those are sort of the features um, that people um, can explore. And so, yeah, you can just read other people's stories. You can share as many stories as you want, and it doesn't have to be written like perfectly there can be spelling mistakes and grammar it does it mistakes it can it's it's mostly for you and it's mostly just for your healing process that's what i want people to know um that there's no writing skill required um but just love just love endless love and i can tell you've taken such great care this is all brand new news to me so you've taken such great care to curate the space and make sure that these stories are held and seen at exactly the level that they need to be held and seen. Uh, And then with the gift of coming back 
to you again, which is really cool because for the most part, the other writing communities and like co-authored books or uh, collections or things like that, or I submitted a story and it was published alongside all these other people's and now the entire world can see it is kind of like the, the standard format. And so that publicity is part and parcel with sharing your story and not everybody's at that level yet. And some stories aren't made for everyone to read. Like to be perfectly honest, some stories aren't for everyone. Sometimes they're just for us or maybe us and one other person uh, or maybe us in the future, which I think that email coming back to you is so cool. I've never heard of anything like that. My mind is totally blown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's Shelby, I, I, because of where I was like, it's, we feel vulnerable, right? Like it's, and so I, I wanted it to be a safe container and just, I think of it like a garden where, you know, these stories come in and I tend them and I read each one and hold it with love. And it's, yeah, it's not meant to be like, like you said, like something that's getting pushed out into the world. It's really a holding place and um, it's like a conservatory in its way. I love it. Endlessstories.love, grave growers, if you'd like to visit Jessica Wade and all the amazing work and holding space that she's creating. Jessica, thank you so much, A, for listening to the show, B, for dropping me a line about you and your story, and C, so, so much for coming on Coming Back today. This was just so absolutely cool. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Jessica Waite, who wrote me personally to share her story of love, loss, and coming back. Jessica came back by journaling for herself only, moving the pain out of her body and onto the page, and then by sharing her writing with others to connect. You can find Jessica's website where you can learn more about her writing community and submit your own story in the show notes. For grief support beyond this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and receive instant access to a monthly grief support hangout with me. The next one is coming up on Monday, March 25th at 8 p.m. Central. You can also apply for private grief coaching with me at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.